Welcome to this second series in the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Philip Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. The previous series dealt with Paul and his communities, namely the earliest evidence we have for the Jesus movement at all, Paul's letters, dating from the 50s CE. In this series, we move on to a historical and literary look at the Gospels. The Gospels that ended up in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, happen to date to the late first century, and so we're moving on to the second generation of Christianity. But we'll also look at some other Gospels in the process, ones that didn't end up in the New Testament. And in this episode, we begin to introduce some of the basics we need to know about the Gospels before we can begin to analyze them as stories and to analyze them in terms of the way in which a particular author portrays Jesus. Today we look at four main introductory issues. First of all, what are the Gospels? And I answer ancient biographies and explain what an ancient biography is. Secondly, we ask the question of where did these Gospels come from? and consider some issues regarding the oral circulation of materials about Jesus that ultimately came to be written down, and the subsequent writing of a story of Jesus that come in the form of Gospels, Gospels like Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. Third question we look at has to do with what is the literary relationship among the written Gospels that ended up in the New Testament. In particular, we delve into the question of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the question of the synoptic problem, the problem of how to explain the literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Lastly, we deal with a fourth issue, the approach we're going to take to the Gospels in this particular podcast. Namely, we're going to be considering the Gospels in terms of their status as stories about Jesus and as biographies in the ancient sense that are presenting a particular portrait of Jesus. And so it's quite apt to look at the Gospels in terms of portraits of Jesus. So in this podcast, we're taking one particular option in terms of how we can approach the study of the Gospels from an historical and literary perspective. There are many other approaches you could take within the academic context, but we are taking an academic approach and a very specific academic approach here, looking at how these writings portray Jesus and what these portraits of Jesus can tell us about the types of Christians and the types of Christian groups that may be behind them. So I hope you enjoy this historical look at the Gospels and come again for subsequent episodes when we begin to delve into specific portraits in each of the Gospels in subsequent episodes. Come again, and I hope in the meantime you might visit my website, philipharlan.com, where you can read about a variety of different issues relating to early Christianity and religions of the ancient Mediterranean. We're moving on now from the earliest evidence we have for Christianity, namely Paul's letters were the earliest evidence. We know nothing directly about the Jesus movement that predates Paul. And so he gives us our first glimpse into a particular kind of the Jesus movement. Now we're moving out into some other sources that will give us glimpses into other types of Christianity, but we're moving forward time-wise too. 
the Gospels post-date Paul. Most of Paul's letters date to the 50s CE, and scholars are generally agreed that all of the Gospels we have post-date 60 CE. So basically, once Paul is dead is when you begin to have these Gospels appearing, these, and we'll have to figure out what a Gospel is soon enough. So we're moving on to the Gospels at this point then, because we're moving forward chronologically in terms of dates of the literature. And we'll see that most of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and John, most scholars would date them between 65 and 95 CE, approximately. One of the central points I hope to get across today is how do we approach the Gospels? In particular, there's a variety of ways you can approach them, historically and academically. In particular, I'm going to give you a method that we are going to use and lead us into that method. We're going to be focusing on the Gospels as narratives, as ancient biographies. And we're going to be getting into the question of how is Jesus portrayed? And we're going to consistently do that so that you have a way of comparing the portraits of Jesus. So the point of today's lecture is to introduce a variety of things that are important for you to know in order for us to study the Gospels at all and then to introduce this specific approach we're going to take. The questions I want to go through that will help us to get a basis on which to then approach the Gospels are these. What are the Gospels is our first question. Our second question is, how did the Gospels come about in the form we have them? Our third question is, what relationships, literarily, are there among the Gospels? And then finally, on point four, I'll go into the question of how can we approach the Gospels as stories, as narratives, and as portraits of Jesus, which is going to be our primary focus. So let's go to the question of what are the Gospels. The term Gospel you're already somewhat familiar with. Paul frequently uses the word euangelion, good news or good message or announcement. The Gospels are not labeled Gospels by the authors. The characterization of these writings about Jesus as Gospels is a second century development. In fact, not only is the labeling of them as Gospels a second century development, but the pinpointing of names to associate them with is a second century development. In other words, saying that one's by Mark, one's by Luke, one's by Matthew, one's by John. That's a second century development. None of them say who they're written by. None of them actually label their writing in a clear way. Why did the second century people start saying, okay, let's call this type of writing a good news? Well, part of the reason is the Gospel of Mark, what we call the Gospel of Mark, begins its first sentence, including the word euangelion, the beginning of the Gospel, the beginning of the announcement of Jesus Christ. And then it goes into its story. So the, in its very first sentence. That seems to have been perhaps the main motivator, along with other practical reasons, why these writings were labeled Gospels. As historians, we're more interested in what type of writing were these when they were produced. Can we place these writings in relation to other literature in the Greco-Roman world? The clear answer is yes, we can place them. And that's what we're dealing with under this first point of what are the Gospels. Since the 1970s especially, but in the 1980s and now by the 1990s, scholars have come around to the view that the Gospels that we have are best compared to ancient biographies. 
there was a type of writing in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world generally, known as a bios, a life. My discussion of ancient biographies here is heavily influenced by Richard Burridge's recent synthesis of discussion by scholarship in this area, and I'd highly recommend you explore that book, What Are the Gospels? Let me clarify what an ancient biography is now. Some of the differences between a modern biography and an ancient biography correspond to these issues. In an ancient biography, there's a focus on public life, not personal life. Most modern biographies, in contrast, are about personal life. Whether they're an autobiography or a biography, usually they try and get inside the head of the person, try to get into their psychological development. That's what a modern biography is. An ancient biography ignores those issues, doesn't even have those categories of psychology and internal development, and focuses instead on the public life of a particular person. In the process, ancient biographies stylize the character they're dealing with in a stereotypical manner. Some of the key stereotypes or types within which the character is cast are these, the holy man, the politician, the philosopher. And so there's certain stereotypical images that the Greeks, Romans, and it turns out early Christian authors have in their minds categories already they're working with. They use information about, that they know about that character, but nonetheless they stereotype that character. This leads to another key issue here and relates to it. Something I've indicated is there's a lack of concern in ancient biography, a lack of concern for the internal motivations and development of a particular person. This goes along quite closely with the stereotypical nature we just talked about, namely that the character is portrayed in a static way. And basically, the person does not change from beginning of story to end. It's about character. This is the key thing that we're coming around to here. The ancient biography is about character, portraying the character of that individual. And the character does not change throughout the whole story. Now, all I've talked about so far relates to what scholars have found about biographies in the ancient context, lives. The next few weeks are all about us understanding how the Gospels are instances of ancient biographies. In the introduction to his life of Alexander, Plutarch happens to theorize about what he's doing. And in the process, it gives you a glimpse into what an ancient author like Plutarch thinks about the type of writing he is creating. And let me read to you this section, which will underline to you the stereotyping nature of biography, will underline to you the very selective nature of ancient biography. It does not try to be comprehensive. It does not try to tell history in any way near what we consider history writing. And let me read from Plutarch here on this one. This is from his Life of Alexander in the introduction uh, to his Life of Alexander. In writing for this book, The Life of Alexander the King, I have before me such an abundance of materials that I shall make no other preface but to beg my readers not to complain of me if I do not relate all his celebrated exploits or even any one in full detail but in most instances, abridge the story. I am writing not histories, but lives. And a man's most conspicuous achievements do not always reveal best his strength or his weakness. 
often a trifling incident, a word or a jest, shows more of his character than the battles where he slays thousands, his grandest mustering of armies, and his sieges of cities. Therefore, as portrait painters work to get their likenesses from the face and the look of the eyes in which the character appears, and pay little attention to other parts of the body, so I must be allowed to dwell especially on things that express the souls of these men and through them portray their lives, leaving it to others to describe their mighty deeds and battles. Look at this emphasis here. Character. The ancient biography is about portraying, and he actually uses the analogy of painting a portrait, doesn't he? Portraying a character. And that's the way we're going to approach the Gospels, as portraits of Jesus. Uh, that we're going to see as we get into the different Gospels. Let me define for you what the biography is. You've already started to get it, get it from what I've said so far. It's a prose narrative devoted exclusively to a portrayal of a particular person. And it's characterized by those various issues I've just been outlining to you. Let me go into a few more things about it. First of all, in its form, it's usually a chronological telling of the person's life. And it's amplified using anecdotes, speeches, sayings, and various documents. Secondly, its content is focused on the subject himself. And it's usually himself, as opposed to herself. Presented as a type. The individual is deliberately portrayed using specific stereotyped characteristics expected of that type of person in antiquity. The function of ancient biography isn't just writing for information's sake. It isn't history for history's sake. Instead, it's usually written to praise or blame the figure and in the process to use that figure as a model in a didactic way, as a way to teach people on what types of behavior are good and what types of behavior are bad. So inbuilt into the ancient biography in terms of its function is moralizing. Definitely not objectively telling the story in the modern sense, but rather subjectively telling the story to try and influence people to think certain ways and behave in certain ways. And you either present the figure as a negative example, blaming, or a positive example, praising, for people to not follow or to follow. So as you can imagine from what I've just said there in terms of its function, there's a lot of epideictic or demonstrative rhetoric that you'll encounter in ancient biographies. So that gives you an overall glimpse into what the ancient biography is. These ancient biographies have axes to grind. The Gospels, like other ancient biographies, have axes to grind. They're trying to moralize. They're trying to influence you to think certain ways. They're not trying to be objective. They're quite explicitly subjective and trying to convince you to think of a figure in a particular way and to therefore do or think certain things because of the way that figure behaved and acted and what they said. In the case of the Gospels, the most important acts to remember about is clarified by this distinction. It's useful to distinguish between the historical Jesus and the phrase that's usually used by scholars is the Christ of faith. The Gospels are not interested in presenting to us the historical Jesus. It would be nice to know about the person around which this whole movement was founded. What about that guy, Jesus, in Galilee? What did he actually do? What did he actually say? What type of guy was he? 
historically? What can we know about him reliably? That's, that's what the historical Jesus issue is all about. But the Gospels are totally disinterested in the historical Jesus. Instead, they're primarily focused on what scholars have used the phrase Christ of faith to describe it. The axe they have to grind is they're presenting a particular view of Jesus that they want you to adopt. The authors live in a particular community that thinks about Jesus in particular ways, plus that individual author might think of Jesus in even more particular ways than the community he belongs to. And that community influence on how to view Jesus and what Jesus is all about and what the meaning of Jesus is, and that individual author's idea of what is the meaning of Jesus, why does Jesus count, is the main focus of the Gospels. The Christ of faith is the focus of the Gospels. Presenting a particular interpretation of what Jesus means is the focus of the Gospels. Something that's obvious from what I've said so far about the biographies and about that issue is we cannot uncritically use the Gospels to get at history. They're not historical writings in the modern sense of the word. Let me just take a few moments here before we go on to some other important background information for understanding the Gospels to at least outline for you some of the writings that were labeled Gospels by the early Christians. Not all of these that are labeled Gospels by the early Christians are in fact ancient biographies. We'll see that some are and some are not. So beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we also have writings like the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a collection of the sayings of Jesus. It's not an ancient biography, but nonetheless, it's labeled a Gospel later on. It's got content that is very early in it. In fact, you can compare some of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas very closely with sayings in Matthew and Luke. A good number of scholars would say to you that you can at least use the Gospel of Thomas to get at the types of sayings of Jesus that were circulating in the first century, contemporary with the types of sayings of Jesus that were circulating when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were written. Second century, you have a whole slew of documents that are labeled Gospels, including those that end up uh, collected together in what scholars now call the early Christian Apocrypha. We have infancy Gospels there, not only stories about Jesus' life, but also stories focused on expanding Jesus' childhood. And the Nag Hammadi writings, the Gnostic writings, Likewise, a lot of writings that are labeled Gospels. So we have the Gospel of Mary. Most of those, though, don't fall into the category of ancient biographies in the sense that we're talking about now. But when it comes to the first century instances of what we call the Gospels, we're dealing with ancient biographies. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels we're going to use alongside some others in terms of looking at portraits of Jesus, date between 65 and 95 CE primarily about 30-year time period, seeing a variety of different authors from different communities expressing the meaning of Jesus in different ways, and in doing so in the, in the form of an ancient biography, an ancient life. The next question we'll want to deal with is, how did the Gospels come about in the form we have them? The first thing to talk about here is oral culture. And I have mentioned this before, but you need to be reminded of it. We in the modern world live in a literate culture that assumes things should be written down. The assumption in the ancient world is the opposite. You assume people will not write things down. <laughs> it's the best way of putting it. 
And an oral culture has a different way of remembering things than a written culture has and has different techniques for remembering and passing on uh, traditions and remembering and passing on teachings about Jesus and remembering and passing on stories about Jesus, etc. And so we're dealing here with a process that goes on before the Gospels are created, where at first you have people following Jesus, Jesus dying, people continuing to think that Jesus is a guy that people should gather around and remember. And in the process of forming communities where they're remembering that figure, they try and remember things they knew about him. And not everyone was there when Jesus was alive. So the people who were there remember certain stories, remember certain sayings they think that Jesus said. And they have ways of continually trying to pass these on orally and sharing them with people they encounter. Communities start to form. So we're dealing with a gradual development of communities following Jesus and believing Jesus is an important figure, passing on stories about Jesus orally, these stories being remembered by the people who hear them and being retold and retold and retold in different contexts. In the process of being retold, being retold in slightly different ways each time, just because that's how orally passing on things works. Nonetheless, in an oral culture like the ancient Mediterranean world and like the Judean culture in the first century, there are techniques for remembering that do keep some elements of stability in the process of telling and retelling. Oral culture has certain ways of telling and retelling of certain stories in a way that maintains some stability even though there's very much freedom. That each person that retells something is going to tell it in a different way and are therefore going to say something different about the meaning of Jesus. Because the reason they're telling and retelling these things isn't just to pass on a story. It's that they believe Jesus means something. And the reason they pass on those stories is because they relate to what they think Jesus means. So this is going on in the earliest stages. Orally passing on material within communities and this continuing in different communities. And sometimes different communities in different locales through the travel of individuals between them, passing on the stories that they have to another group of Jesus followers. And likewise, cross-fertilization gradually between different groups. So that's the earliest stage, the oral stage. Then gradually, in an oral culture, there are a few people who are literate, and there are a few people who might consider the idea of writing things down. And so gradually, you have some things being written down. It seems plausible from what we have, from the evidence we have, and we'll get into it soon, that some of the earliest things that were written down were probably sayings of Jesus, where there happened to be a literate guy belonging to a group of Jesus followers. He knows all these stories he's been hearing about what Jesus said and what Jesus taught, and that individual decides, hey, I'm going to write this down. That's an odd thing to do, but nonetheless, they do it. An odd thing in terms of how the culture works. So at the earliest stages, you probably have sayings of Jesus written down, perhaps also people writing down episodes about what Jesus did, deeds of Jesus and sayings of Jesus maybe being written down. And then the next stage, people saying, I would like to write the life of Jesus. Sure, we've got a variety of different things passed on in my community orally about what Jesus did and said, but we don't really have a story of Jesus. We don't really have the life of Jesus. 
Gospel of Mark, seems to be the first surviving instance of a follower of Jesus sitting down and feeding on the orally passed on material he has, writing a story about Jesus' life focused on the identity, the character of Jesus. So we're dealing with the time period of about 30 to 40 to 50 years after Jesus' death, that the first stories of Jesus are being written down, at least the ones that have survived to us. It may well be that there were earlier ones that we just don't have. We know that there are plenty of other Gospels we don't have. There's all kinds of Gospels referred to by authors that we just do not possess the text of. Now, on this community process of orally passing on material, since about the 1920s, there developed within the study of the New Testament this method of form criticism. We won't go into it in detail, but let me at least tell you what it is. Namely, a form critic is interested in the oral stage of the material, the folklore stage, you could say, looking at the folklore stage of the material that ended up in the Gospels. But basically, form critics are interested in the Gospels as a collection of materials. That's the way they look at the Gospels. Not so much as a story. They may acknowledge that, but they're interested in the types of materials that were collected together and trying to go back to the earlier stage of how did those things circulate before they ended up in the Gospels. Some of the forms that they would identify and study how they were passed on before the Gospels were written were sayings, parables, pronouncement stories, proverbs, miracle stories, healing stories. And so they categorized different forms of material and then asked the question of what can we say about this type of material at the oral stage? Very difficult task. So they're looking at the units of tradition, the groups of material that have circulated before they ended up in the Gospels. And they're less interested in how they've all been put together. And they're less interested in, therefore, the author. They're very disinterested. A form critic is disinterested in the author, is disinterested in the portrayal of Jesus. They're more interested in what was there before this author had an effect on the material. Let's go on to the next question. Now that we've at least got written Gospels, we know we go from oral to written in a gradual process. And then you end up with your Gospels. The next question is, what is the relationship among the Gospels? In particular, the canonical Gospels I'm talking about right now. But also the Gospel of Thomas relates to this very issue because it has so much material in common with some of the canonical ones. A synopsis. This is what scholars use to study the relationship between the Gospels. This question of what is the literary relationship among the Gospels. And to study what we call source criticism. Source criticism is the study of sources and how the Gospels are related to one another. What sources they used when they were being written. And the synopsis are looking together. Scholars have put side by side and repeated it whenever they needed to material that is duplicated in different Gospels. This allows you to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John side by side whenever they have common material. And then to study more carefully, what can we say about who used who? Basically, when you got into the 1700s, but even before that, but especially in the 1700s, you had individuals who were critically analyzing the New Testament and critically analyzing the Gospels. And you began to have certain people, like Griesbach, 
who started to at least analyze the issue of similarities and differences between the Gospels. Similarities and differences in content, in other words, that the Gospels sometimes have the same saying of Jesus, or the same miracle of Jesus, or the same deed. They also began to notice, beyond content, issues of arrangement, of order. In other words, similarities in the order of the story of Jesus in certain Gospels in relation to another Gospel. And differences in order between one Gospel and another Gospel. The most blatant example of the same incident or a similar incident in a different order is Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Where in, in the Synoptic Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have at the end of Jesus' story, just before his execution, before his arrest, him going into the temple and overturning the t- tables in a sort of destructive way. In the Gospel of John, you have that incident almost at the beginning of the story of Jesus. So there's an example of the same similar deed of Jesus going into the temple, overturning tables in a different order. But what scholars noticed is when they started to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John together, they started to see how much John did not fit when it came to similarities, where John was out in left field. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels, the looking together gospels, because of the high degree of similarities between them. And scholars are interested in solving the synoptic problem. This is another term you'll come across, synoptic problem. And by synoptic problem, they mean the problem of what is the literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It became very clear that there is a literary relationship, not an oral relationship. In other words, it's not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all had similarly circulating oral material. It's that when you look at the Greek, you see that this is a literary relationship. Greek can have more forms than English can. So that a a verb can have different endings and a noun can have different endings. And when you have the Greek identical, it's really drawing your attention to the fact that this is a literary relationship. In other words, one author had in front of them a copy of the other gospel when they were writing. And they used that other gospel as a source. And so studying the synoptic problem is attempting to sort out which gospel was written first, which gospels were written subsequently, and how do the different gospels relate to one another, who used what sources in writing their story of Jesus. It turns out that as study of this issue of similarities and differences developed, different theories, different hypotheses were developed to account for the relationship between the Gospels. Let me at least spend a little bit of time here explaining the three main hypotheses that have been put forward to account for the literary relationship. First, there's the Griesbach hypothesis, also known as the two-gospel hypothesis. Secondly, there was a hypothesis developed by the scholar named Farrer, also known sometimes as the Mark Without Q hypothesis. And thirdly, there's the two-source hypothesis, which happens to be the more dominant theory for explaining the literary relationships among the Synoptic Gospels today. And it turns out we will be using that hypothesis as our hypothesis in this course. 
So let me explain each of these three hypotheses briefly. First of all, the Griesbach hypothesis. Griesbach was that scholar I mentioned that in the late 1700s started to analyze the similarities and differences in order and in content in the Gospels, and he developed the theory that Matthew wrote first, that Luke used Matthew as a source, and that Mark was written third of all three synoptic Gospels. Mark used both Matthew and Luke as sources and conflated the two into a shorter gospel, according to this theory. So that's how this theory works. Matthew first, Luke second, Mark using both Matthew and Luke as sources. The second main theory I want to briefly mention to you, even though we can't do it justice here, is known as the Farer hypothesis, named after the scholar Farer, who developed it initially. Today, Mark Goodacre has a whole website devoted to this very theory. His website's known as the Case Against Q. Another name for this theory is precisely Markin Priority Without Q. And we'll explain what Q is soon enough, but this theory doesn't need it. This theory is that Mark wrote first. So with this theory, there's Markin Priority. Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. We'll see this is shared in common with the third theory we're going to come to soon, that Mark wrote first. However, with this theory, Mark wrote first, Matthew wrote second, and used Mark as a source. Then Luke wrote subsequent to both Mark and Matthew. Luke used both Matthew as a source and Mark as a source. In this theory, there is no Q, which brings us to the third main theory that we need to deal with here. The third main theory is known as the two-source hypothesis, or the two-document hypothesis. Sometimes there's alternate names for it, including the four-source hypothesis. This hypothesis also, like the first two hypotheses, tries to explain the similarities and differences between the synoptic gospels, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and tries to explain which gospel used which other gospel as a source in order to write the story of Jesus. In this case, it is posited that Mark wrote first, that Matthew wrote after Mark and used Mark as a source. Similarly, with Luke, Luke wrote after Mark and used Mark as a source. So both Matthew and Luke share material in common sometimes because they both used Mark as a source. So that's source one in the two-source hypothesis. This hypothesis goes further, though, and analyzes the material in Matthew and Luke that Matthew and Luke have in common that is not in Mark. There is plenty of material common to Matthew and Luke that is not in Mark. And these scholars see that there is very close similarities between material in Matthew and Luke that is not in Mark. And look at the wording of this and notice how identical it is at times. And posited that there was a written source that was used by both Matthew and Luke. A collection of the sayings of Jesus. A sayings source. Scholars labeled this hypo hypothetical saying source Q after the German word for source. So it could have ended up being called S if the initial designers of this theory had been working in English. 
could have been the S for source to name this sayings collection. So this gives us our second source in the two-source hypothesis. Mark is one source, and Q, a collection of the sayings of Jesus, is source two, two sources. Both Mark and Q, these two sources, are used by both Matthew and Luke. Matthew uses Mark and Q, and Luke uses Mark and Q, the two-source hypothesis. There's some material in Matthew that does not have parallel in Q, in other words, in the parts of Luke that are common to Q, and that does not have a parallel in Mark. And so within this theory, they developed further elements of it that brings us our term four-source hypothesis. In fact, Ehrman in your textbook uses this term, the four-source hypothesis. Namely, that there's material in Matthew that's only common to Matthew. And quite often, scholars for the diagram of this will call it the M material, the Matthean material, that's only in Matthew and not in Luke and not in Mark, and not in the Q source in this hypothesis. And for Luke, they'll have the Lucan material, the L material, that is not in Matthew and not in Mark and not in Q. And so this adds our two more sources to make it the four-source hypothesis for those of scholars that call it that. So have you got this? Mark first, Matthew and Luke later, independently, using Mark and Q. Let's get on to this last point here about the Gospels as stories. What we noticed with the form critics is that they were disinterested in the author's activity. What began to develop before you had a narrative approach to the Gospels was something that is essential to a narrative approach to the Gospels, and that is redaction criticism. People who looked at redaction in the Gospels focused on the question of how a particular author edits material he is working with. So this also presupposes source criticism because it's already assuming that Matthew, for example, is using a source. And when Matthew uses a source, what does Matthew like to do with it? Sure, he uses the material there, but Matthew is an author who has his own favorite things to do, favorite ways of editing material he has access to, favorite ways of presenting material, favorite words he likes to use. Redaction critics look at this redaction process. Redaction is similar to editing, right? the editing process that goes on when an author uses a source and reworks a source. That reworking is what we're talking about when we talk about redaction. This develops especially since the 1950s, this idea of redaction criticism, alongside form, alongside form criticism and source criticism. But why this is relevant to the approach we're taking, to the narrative approach, is precisely the focus on authors and the focus on an author with an intention an author with a tendency to shape the material that they're working with. These were not just collectors of material. These were authors who spun the material they had in particular ways. So redaction criticism is especially useful for looking at the Gospels as stories, as biographies. This narrative approach that we're going to be taking throughout the subsequent lectures where we look at portraits of Jesus, how does the author of the Gospel of Mark portray Jesus, what is the plot line of the Gospel of Mark? How do the characters function within the plot line? 
How does that relate to the overall portrayal of Jesus? All these questions especially developed since the 1980s. And we'll also be in the process of approaching the Gospels as stories. We'll be able to look at different literary techniques that are used. So as we work through Mark for next week, you're reading the Gospel of Mark. What I want you to do is primarily read it, not as sources of information for what Jesus says or does, but rather as a story. Think of an author writing a story when you're reading it and say, okay, what is this author's main plot line? How does the author make the plot work? Who are the main characters in the story? How do the characters interact with each other and move the plot forward? How does this overall plot line with the interaction of characters help to present Jesus in a particular way? And what is that portrait of Jesus that that particular author created in the process of telling the story? So that's what you want to do as you're beginning to read Gospel of Mark for next week. We can also move back from that, though, and say, okay, what does that tell us about the type of Christians that were using that portrait of Jesus or that created that portrait of Jesus? So you can move back from the narrative story sort of approach to the Gospels to the question of history in communities, social history. What's going on in this community such that this is the portrait of Jesus we're seeing? That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records, and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.